to get started this morning. I know y'all are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed already for the late-night reveling that you're going to all participate in this evening. Um, if my pattern holds true, long about 10 o'clock, depending on when the games are over, I'll be... <laughs> I'll wake up in the morning and be a new year. <laughs> anyway, uh, please open your Bibles to Jude 4 this morning. Jude 4, uh, or Jude 1, 4, if you want to call it Jude Jude 1. It's, there's only one chapter. Please open it to Jude 4, and we're going to continue our study of this amazing little summary book that's placed just before the book of Revelation. Before we begin, let's take just a few moments uh, of prayer to get ourselves ready to look into and to study God's Word. Let us pray. Father, we're amazed at your grace. We look around and see what's going on in the world, and Father, we are just uh, floored, but we see that uh, you want everybody to be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth. And so you're just patient, your patience is waiting. And Father, we know one of these days your patience is going to be uh, stretched to the limit and you're going to pour out your judgment. And Father, we, uh, we thank you that we know the side of history that we are on. And Father, we pray that indeed we will be able to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you during these last days. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Jude 4 and... Uh, uh, it's just we're at the last word point eight. That's why you've got all the blanks filled in and the first seven questions on the handout there. And it, it says for certain men. Now he is giving here in verses three and four the purpose of the book of Jude. Why did he write it? And he is writing it so that we may be better defenders of the faith. And so he's he's giving us some basic information once again in the summary four, and he's going to. Give us a quick Bible walkthrough. You'll find that's the case occasionally in the scripture that you'll find like in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon. It's a quick walk through the Bible. And so a walk through the Bible with the big ideas and the big uh, events in the Bible is frequently very useful to just keep our, our thoughts about the big picture before we start drilling into the details. Because we need a, a comprehensive view of Scripture, the big picture, before we can actually see the details clearly. And then when we see the details, we bring them back out into the big picture for a better understanding and a, and a clear picture. And he says, For certain men have snuck in alongside others. Now, the warning in Second Peter, because this book is similar, was that they will do it, and Jude says they have done it. So it tells us that in the first century that the, the, the sneaky people have already started moving into the churches, and they are starting to do damage. He says those who were written beforehand, prographo, uh, a long ago, into this judgment. Now, what he's saying is that the Lord had, had known this all along. Nothing catches the Lord by surprise. Second Peter 3, 9, he is not slow as we count slowness, but he's patient toward us. And so he's been, been very patient. And it's not that these people can't believe, but he knows they're not going to. 
but he's still giving them grace. And that all works into another thing we know as the angelic conflict. But he said, into this judgment, ungodly, asabia is a word, sabia is a word that basically means reverent. And when you put an A on the front of it, it says not reverent. Now, we find a massive amount of irreverence toward God today. Uh, they they mock him, they laugh at him. They uh, uh, There's something that's supposed to be a new movie out that's supposed to be funny. Uh, the, the Gospel of Clarence or some goofy thing like that. And um, it's a mockery. It's a mockery of Christianity is what it's designed to be. And he says, ungodly persons who transpose, metathemi, the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, asogia, you frequently see translated as sensuality. And sensuality is not quite what this word is about. This is about having a license to sin. So I would rather translate it as licentiousness. And they said they basically have taken the grace of God and they've turned it into a license to sin. Now, we find that going on even today where uh, a lot of Christians have have no problem with the whole issue of sin and they think it doesn't matter anymore and doesn't make any difference. And yet that is a serious problem. He says, turn it into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Kurios, Jesu Christu, Jesus the Messiah. So he's saying these people have snuck into the church. They have snuck in and they are unbelievers and they brought with them a whole pack of lies. Now, we've looked at all these. We looked at what it means to deny the Lord in different ways the scripture says to deny the Lord. And we have we have looked at um, uh, we've looked at licentiousness and what that means. And now we're just going to this point eight is where we left off. Ungodliness can be changed. And whenever we look at the scripture, sometimes people read this in and they say they're ungodly people who have crept in and all this and that there's no hope for them. There's no change possible for them. But ungodliness can be changed. And when we look up the word asogia, we find out that it can. Now, God knew how they, that they would turn out. But he didn't make them that way. And that's a, that's a big important factor. Romans 4, 5 says to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. See, while we were enemies, we were ungodly. That's who we were. That's who all of us were. And he says, but through faith, you can be declared righteous. That's what justified means. You can get the righteousness of God. You need to stand in front of a holy God. In Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, I'm thankful for that. Because it's so easy for us to look around and see a lot of ungodly people. We don't really need to... Uh, have a lot of definition. Seems like we can see that. We can spot it a mile off. But when we look in the mirror, sometimes we miss the fact that we too were once ungodly. So ungodliness can be changed. I'm thankful that it can because uh, we sitting in here, we've been changed. Now, law is so the ungodly can see their need for a Savior. Now, 
There's a work of the flesh, they call it, it's all over the New Testament, called lawlessness. And sometimes people don't have any laws and they misunderstand what Paul wrote about. Now, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. We're under the law of love, the law of Christ. This is who we are and what what we do. And so they say, well, it's just a freedom to sin. The Gnostics were, were known for that and they had infiltrated the churches. John wrote his three epistles primarily to Gnostics in the mid-80s. So he says... But in First Timothy, he says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, so the Mosaic law is good if you use it correctly. And then he explains to us how to use it correctly. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man. If you're not in violation of the law, it's not really made for you. It's, but it's made for the lawless and rebellious and for the ungodly and sinners Uh, so the law was made for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So Paul's writing to Timothy. He said the law's got its place. Now, we know its place is to be a tutor. Okay, It's a teacher that's designed to lead us to Christ. Where there's no law, sin is not imputed. Also in Romans 4 and 5, two times it's found in there. Where there's no law. So God defined it all out and said this is the law. It also told us what Jesus paid for on the cross. Because he took care of all of these things. So that we might be saved. Now, <clears throat> it's for the, to show a savior. Because if you thought about it in our society, lawless people don't need a savior, do they? If they're looking for a savior, they need a government savior. They need an attorney to get them off for something that they really did that was uh, bad to other people. But if there's no law, why do you need a savior? And when you look at the ultimate one and only savior, Jesus Christ, he's just talked about, and you leave him out of the picture, the only thing that you've got left are the saviors of man. And they're going to let you down. Unchecked ungodliness deserves intensive discipline. Whenever it goes on and it's unchecked, it deserves intensive discipline. In 1 Peter 4.18, he says, If it is with difficulty, the righteous is saved. And we see that verse and we go, Difficulty? Because people who come after us who believe that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. Their argument is it's easy believism. Okay, it's easy salvation, but it's anything but easy. And the culture in which we live and in which the world lives, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is anything but easy. And how was it accomplished and paid for? By the death of the God-Man on the cross. That's how it was accomplished and paid for. It says the heavens were the finger work of God, but salvation took his arm. Okay? So how easy, indeed, was it? He says, 
if it's with difficulty, the righteous is saved. You live in a righteous life and all that, you still need a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Where are you going to get it? By grace, through faith. He says, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Huh. If it's difficult to save even a righteous man, one who's walking in ethical standards, not walking in immorality and all that, it's still difficult to save him. What about those that are just flagrantly violating all the laws of God and men? Ungodliness eventually runs out of grace. We did a study on that not long ago about when grace runs out. And there are times throughout the course of human history, grace runs out. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, And God did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, the irreverent, those who had no regard for God. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. He's saying living a life of ungodliness is a dead end straight. Exactly what it is. But in Jude 14, he says, And also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Sounds like Jude found a word he liked, didn't it? Ungodly. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him for those usages found in that passage. Okay? So God eventually judges the ungodly. And why does he tarry? It's called grace. Because we're all there at one point in, in, or another in our life. Because of ungodliness, one day the present heavens and earth are going to be destroyed. From 2 Peter 3, 7, it says, In the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, you'll be glad to know that the ungodly women are not destroyed. (laughs) That's not what it means. Just to clarify, It is a figure of speech. (laughs) Okay? Ungodliness is what's going to be taken out of. Now, ungodliness can be changed. So that which crept into the church, whenever the church finds it, they need to be able to deal with it. And it has gotten into churches all, literally, all over the world. We have seen this. Uh, We went to Republic of Georgia. And uh, we were asked to come there because... Uh, they have four bishops. I've told you this story multiple times. Four bishops over this Baptist Union. And one of them went over. They sent him to Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere over there for three years to study. And when he came back, he came back with all the homosexual marriage and a little bit of everything else. He came back a full-bore liberal theologian, didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God, etc., etc. And they asked us to come over uh, and teach. And so what's found in that 
foundations too on the back that's what we went over and taught we had a week with them about 50 pastors there in um, belarus and uh, it was a Quite an interesting thing because there's just some things that they had not thought about because what we have, we have a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's a result of thoughtful planning of our God that if you look for it, you can find out why faith in Jesus Christ is the only reasonable answer in this life to solve a problem you couldn't solve to begin with. Now, <clears throat> ungodliness can be changed. Now, in our outline, see, we've seen the purpose of the book in chapter 3 and 4. He wants you to be able to defend your so great salvation. And then in chapter 5, he starts uh, past judgment. He's talking about the description and exposure of false teachers. And now, in this, this next section, he's going to talk about... Um, their, their past judgment. What's happened to them in the past? So it's not like it, God is not slow as some count slowness. It says that he's not asleep in Second Peter 3 as well. He's, he's, he's not forgotten about us. He's not exodus off. He's not given up on us. He's just saying, I want some more people saved. And um, I had a conversation with some folks the other night. And, and I've said it to you many times. You want the rapture to happen? Tell more people about Jesus. Because when that body of Christ and bride of Christ gets full, uh, I think he's going to come get us. I think that's what's going to happen. But he's waiting because he knows how many are going to be in there and he's already got it planned for because he is omniscient. So, uh, you know, if you, get a, if you get a chance, tell more people about the Lord. Now, verse 5 And he says, now I desire, this is Jude speaking again, and desire is the word bulomai. Now when you start looking at different Greek words, bulomai is a uh, deliberate act of the will. Thelo is another word translated desire, and it is a, it's more of a wishful thinking. I desire this to happen. But bulomai is a deliberate act of the will. It's present tense, so Jude is relaying something he's thinking about while he's being inspired to write this. He says, I, I desire, I will it, to remind you. Remind you is hupomimnesco. And this means literally, mimnesco by itself means to remind, hupo means under. So hence it means uh, it's, it's coming from an authority. He says, I want to remind you, and he has the authority given by God to write this section of scripture. So he says, I want to remind you, though you know all things once for all. This is, um, uh, they got a little free with the uh, translation here because the word once uh, doesn't go with this initial phrase, once for all, but it goes with the next phrase. So it should say, though you know all these things, that the Lord wants. Hopox goes with with it. He says <clears throat> that the Lord, after saving, and saving is the word sozo, which is the word to preserve from danger. And here is a picture of salvation from earthly problems, not spiritual problems. 
Okay? And it's a good use of the word soteria and sozo is the verb form that is used here. It's a picture of salvation from earthly problems. Now the Jews were in a mess in Egypt, right? We all know that. We've all read Exodus. We've all read about the parting of the, the Red Sea and all those other things. We've, we've seen all that. He says, but after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who didn't believe. So he took care of their physical salvation. He got them out of Egypt. Now there were those who had actually believed in the Lord Jesus, but there were some who didn't. Uh, they're called various things in the description found in Exodus. Basically, the um, paraphrasing the riffraff that went along from from Egypt. They they were just the incorrigibles that that went along. The word uh, destroyed is the word apoluo. Now this is a word that is worthy of study. And it's a word that takes a while. It's used 90 times in the verb form uh, in the New Testament. It means to destroy, but in the sense of ruin. Not in the sense of a loss of existence, but in the sense of loss of well-being. Now the Jews had it pretty well off out in the desert. Think about it. <laughs> You've been in Egypt for hundreds of years. <laughs> you grew up in Egypt. You're taken off out in the desert. You're no longer under bondage. You're no longer being whipped by taskmasters. God's providing manna out of heaven for you. He's providing all the food you need, the clothes that you wore out of Egypt. You might have got tired of them, but they didn't wear out for 40 years. Okay? He's So this is really not bad by comparison even though they said oh let's let's go back to Egypt when we had all these things you didn't have all those things when you lived in Egypt so <clears throat> he said but this is a, a word that shows that the, the well-being that they had out in the desert and by the way they had a shade over them remember the Lord the Shekinah glory get put a shade how valuable is a shade in the desert yeah, well, he was a shade over them. And when the shade moved, they moved. That was a pretty easy will of God point to follow, was it? <laughs> the shine of glory goes, oh, we're going over here for a while. <laughs> and probably some hard-headed ones say, no, nah, we'll just stay here. We like this sand right here in this spot. But anyway, they lost their well-being. And then it says, pastuo, which is the word... Not having believed. So, <clears throat> apoluo is used in Matthew 10.39, which says, He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life or been ruined for my sake shall find it. In other words, if you want, if you want the best the Lord's got to offer, you need to get the things of this earth in the right perspective. That's what he's saying. People, places, things, and events. Those things will drag us down faster than anything. I had a conversation not too long ago with, with an individual whose father was all about things and couldn't really show affection or anything else because it was all about the things and basically hurt the family. Now, <clears throat> so I remind you 
though you know all these things, that the Lord once, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed or ruined those who did not believe. Now, it's necessary to be reminded of the important things of history. It's necessary to be reminded of the important things from history. There's some things that if you just stop and think about what the Lord put together, I think you know, creation, Genesis 1, the flood, Genesis 6, Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11, uh, Abraham in the land, Genesis 12. How about the Hebrews crying out to the Lord in Exodus 2? Because they didn't have enough straw to make the bricks, and so who did they cry out to? And he heard. See, when people are pressed and they cry out to him, you, he hears everything because he already knows it, but he hears. He pays attention. He gets his attention. The Lord answered them, but all they did was grumble. Now, <clears throat> Philippians 2.14, does anybody have that verse on their refrigerator? Do all things without grumbling? You know, we ought to make a bunch of little plaques that says that with magnets on them. And <laughs> put one on the refrigerator, one on the mirror that we brush our teeth in front of. You know, I used to comb my hair in front of it, but alas, that's gone. And then do all things without grumbling. You know, that's one of the most difficult commands of Scripture to follow there is. And the Jews turned it into an art form. Now, <clears throat> they uh, all they did was grumble. What did, they, what did he do for them? Well, he raised up Moses to get him out of there. He brought ten plagues on Egypt to get the Pharaoh to let him go. He took them out in the desert, and they complained about the water out there. There, wasn't a, there was first too much at the Red Sea. Then there wasn't enough. And then it was the wrong kind, the waters at Merah. Uh, he taught, they talked about how bad it was compared to Egypt. Oh, they wish they were back in Egypt. They, they saw the report of the spies. Oh, there's giants in the land. There's giants in the land. We can't defeat them. And God said, that's what you're supposed to do. <clears throat> and the Korah rebellion, even from within their own ranks, all they did was grumble. So the Lord answered them. Their prayers, they cried out for deliverance. He delivered them, and all they did was complain about it. Their grumbling displayed a lack of love for God. And eventually, they lost their well-being. So when you grumble over a period of time, now, I think, uh, you know, so God is so gracious. Occasionally, we grumble when the light turns red before we get through it. Okay, there's some things that are just automatic responses. But when you have 40 years to get it right... Okay, and it's the same thing over and over again. And you see God on a daily basis providing food. Maybe don't you think the grumbling ought to stop? So finally, he got rid of them. Bring us meat. Bring us meat. You remember that? So he brought them quail. What did they do? They choked on it. Okay, so he used what they wanted and complained about and grumbled about, and he used it to bring discipline to them. So only two people went into the land of Canaan that walked out of Egypt. Joshua and Caleb. 
Not even Moses got to go in. Now, Jude's three examples have the common thread of disobedience to the laws of God and their judgments. Because he's going to talk about here the Exodus generation. He's going to talk about the pre-flood angels. And he's going to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so they have a common thread of disobedience to the laws of God. Some things he set up, some things he established. And when a people continues in disobedience to God, eventually the discipline is poured out. Even God's people were not immune from discipline for a lack of faith. Even his people, Israel's chosen people. Now, what's going on over there now? Well, you know, some of what's going on is discipline for their unbelief. You know, we we celebrate Christmas here. You know, we have such a first world problem. We can argue about is Christmas December 25th or is it in October? Is it in April? And we can argue, 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 argue over that stuff. And yet, can't celebrate it over there in Israel. Hmm. It's amazing how Bethlehem even got shut down. This year. Can't even visit Bethlehem. For the pilgrimage people. People want to make. Can't can't do that. So. You know. Even God's people. Are not immune from discipline. Leviticus 26 is all about. Discipline on the nation of Israel. That comes in five cycles. There were many of the Exodus generation. That believed in the Lord for salvation. So they they were saved. After the pattern of Abraham. They believed God and has imputed them righteousness. Many were believers, but most failed to believe the judgments declared by the law. Now, God lays it out, and he says, this is what I expect of you, my people. And they stop listening. So eventually, they get the discipline. We're called to learn from the mistakes of others, so not to repeat them. You know, the Bible invites us to do that all the way through it. We're told that um, it's wise to learn from your own mistakes. True. But the wisest person learns from the mistakes of others. Huh? We don't have to repeat them in order to learn when we've seen what they've done to other people. The wisest people learn from the mistakes of other people. So not to repeat them. Now if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Because this is written by Paul, 56 AD, 15, 20 years before Jude was written. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, that's anybody knows anything about the Bible knows exactly who he's talking about right there. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's the interesting thing about baptism. There's at least eight different kinds of baptism found in the New Testament. And here's what I'm that's referred to. Interestingly enough, this one's dry. There is no water. Okay? Baptism means to identify with. 
So they identified with Moses is what it is saying. And all ate the same spiritual food. Oh, you talking about that old manna? Spiritual food. Well, it was spiritual food because it came from God. They missed that. They gathered it all up. They ate it all and never appreciated really the one that, that gave it to them. But spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink. And were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them. Oh, in case you missed it, the rock was Christ. Okay, so Here's Paul, inspired of the Spirit, giving us some insight into this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they were all laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happen as examples for us. Not that we should crave, that we should not crave evil things. Like they craved. And don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, that's part of the golden calf incident. That's while Moses was up on the mountain. And he came down from the mountain, and what had they done? They, they had taken all their gold, and they put them in this crucible. And he said, Aaron, what have you done? And Aaron said, well, it's just the craziest thing, Moses. So all these people put all this gold in, and poof, out came a golden calf. (laughs) Those two were brothers. (laughs) I don't know what was going through Moses' head, but I'm going to ask him when we get up there. Uh, We know what was going through Aaron's head, which wasn't much. But we know (laughs) Moses, he's going, I can't believe you were so stupid. Anyway, he says, nor let us act immorally, as some did. And 23,000 fell in one day. He made it melt it down and drink it. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. You remember that? Gripe, 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 gripe. Okay. Moses, I want a bronze serpent. Set it up right there in the middle. I want children of Israel to march around this bronze serpent. And every time they get bit by snakes, look at the serpent and they will live. If they don't, they're going to die. And they didn't. (laughs) So many of them didn't. What's bronze? It's a picture of judgment. What's the serpent? The old devil. The devil had been judged. So they were just to look to the fact that the devil had been judged. The simple instruction. And they're so hard-headed. They're so hard-headed they wouldn't do it. I think of Moses when they first came out and God said, I'm going to kill them all and make you a great nation, Moses. You remember that? Early on, I'm tired of these people. I'm going to kill them all and make you, Moses, a great nation. And Moses said, no, you can't do that. You have made a promise to them. You have to keep your promise. So you can't kill them all. So Moses acting truly as Messiah, stepped in as an intercessor. Okay? Forty years later, God just kill them all. I don't care what you do with it. <laughs> he was tired of messing with them. He says, nor grumble. You see where Philippians 2.14 comes from? As some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to us as an example 
They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so you'll be able to endure it. What is that promise about? Because that's a real promise. The promise, if you look to him, you'll have the spiritual means by which to endure any test and to do it right and to pass it. There are other people in this world who face the same thing that you are facing now. And they've passed. Peter writes about it too. They've passed it. So he's saying, if you look to the right one and stop complaining about everything, but what do you want to do? Give thanks in all things? Then guess what? You too have the spiritual resources to pass anything that you face in this life. Now, in context, <clears throat> the importance of virtue is not part of their belief system. Okay? Wasn't part of their belief system. These are close, this is close to 2 Peter. But remember 2 Peter 1.5, for this very reason also applying all diligence. In your face supply moral excellence. Virtue. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Some people say, I, I was always taught knowledge was most important. I thought it should be there at the front. It wasn't. Why? Because we know the right things to do, even as unbelievers. Supply virtue. People know there's a difference between right and wrong, and that's what we're supposed to do. So if you really want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is where Peter is heading in there, do the things you know are right to do. Do the things that are God's will first, and then you keep growing. God deliberately exercises his will. There are places that as he does is displayed by <clears throat> granting the perfect gift of salvation to those who believe. Okay. <clears throat> what does God say? You believe in my son, you shall have eternal life. No ifs, ands, or buts. No questions. The condition, believe in my son. And what happens? It is his will. That you have eternal life. Now how are you going to overcome his. Bulomai. Declared act of will. Every good thing bestowed. And every perfect gift. Is from above. Coming down from the father of lights. With whom there is no variation. Or shifting shadow. By the exercise of his will. He brought us forth. By the word of truth. So that we might be. As it were the first fruits among his creatures it's a deliberate exercise of the will of God that you are part of the family now sometimes people think well God doesn't think much of me I'm not very important woe is me woe is me if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this is a deliberate exercise of his will that got you into the family because you met the condition he also sovereignly distributes spiritual gifts Huh. Oh, you have a gift. As a believer, you get at least 50 things, one of which is the spiritual gift. And, of course, we argue, is it multiple gifts or is it only one gift? I personally think it's only one. But back in the early church, they could have more than one. But who gives it to us? Now, I've, I've got a friend, pastor in Alabama, 
and he teaches spiritual gifts once a year just just to keep everybody reminded about them and he said there's always a popular gift that year that everybody wants and he said i've been teaching this for 30 40 years and i can't seem to get past this thing because i will teach about there's a gift of mercy and teaching and pastor teacher and encouragement and giving and mercy i'll teach about all the gifts and then one year everybody wants mercy he said, which will drive you crazy because you need other people. It can take care of it when the gift of mercy functions. Because the gifts are designed for us to work together, not work separately or individually. That's why we're supposed to be a team in all this. But who gives the gifts? And can you trade it? No. <laughs> why? <coughs> One in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. You have a gift, or maybe more than one, I'm not going to argue over that, that the Holy Spirit gave you. Okay? Now, I know a lot of people, and I was one of them, when I started figuring out my gift was pastor, teacher, I didn't want it. Helen didn't want it, for sure. But why? Well, because there's things that go with that. And some people have the gift of encouragement. They do it just without even trying. The Lord provides opportunities. And seems like always the right word comes out of their mouth. Or nothing comes out of their mouth. Which is still an encouragement. Some have the gift of administration. Some people have the gift of leadership. Some have the gift of teaching. We're all called to teach, aren't we? Hebrews 5.12, if you want to argue with that. We're all called to teach, but some are gifted in that area. That's evidence of a spiritual gift. So <clears throat> he's the one that sovereignly displays the gifts. So if you feel this pulling of the Holy Spirit and you don't like it, just say, Lord, help me accept it. Help me accept it, help me identify it, and give me chances to use it. That's because it's a test, isn't it? When he gives you something maybe you didn't really want. We're going to see that next hour. What happens when he answers a prayer and you go, huh? (laughs) Me? Not really what I was talking about. Giving us promises, now I love this one, to anchor our souls during the storms of life. You know, it's been said, sometimes he calms the storm. We all live in Oklahoma. That's usually what we pray for, isn't it? Calm the storm. But usually he calms us in the middle of the storm. In the same way, in Hebrews 6.17, God, desiring even more. This is not simply desire. This is not thelo. This is bulomai. Willing even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. God made a decision to manifest his immutability. He says, interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have strong encouragement. Now when he says, I'm with you and I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you trust it? That's the test. 
because he's the one that's always faithful. We're not. (laughs) So the question is, how do we adjust our thinking in our life to align with his? He says, so that we might have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Hope is about faith for the future. Okay? Faith for the now is one thing, but faith for the future. Do you believe he's really going to come back and get you? Do you believe that you're really going to get a new body? Do you really believe you're going to live with him forevermore? And he, there's no more sorrow or pain or any of those things. The old things have passed away. You're a new create creation. You're a new creature. And you've been made in such a way you can see Christ as he is. That's, those are powerful messages. But most of the people in the churches today don't buy that. Because they don't buy the fact that the Word of God is the Word of God. And the Bible is reliable. Now, <clears throat> we have as an anchor of the soul. Beautiful thing about anchors. I remember in the Boy Scouts getting our rowing merit badge. also got canoeing that week, which... The instructor said, I've got to pass somebody, and you're farther along anybody, but don't get in any water with a current. <coughs> don't get in any water with a current in it, or you'll wish you hadn't. But he taught us there about anchors. And they said, a sea anchor. How do you make a sea anchor if you're in a rowboat and caught out in a storm on a lake? And you make something that will go over the bow. Because what you want to do <coughs> is keep the bow headed into the wind. Keep it headed into the wind because then the boat will align properly with the waves and you're much less apt to get capsized. That's what anchors do. They stabilize us in the middle of the storm. And he says, we have it as an anchor of the soul, a hope which sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He deliberately exercises his will by revealing his desire for everybody to be saved. <clears throat> That's his will. doesn't mean everybody will be saved because he set conditions on it. And the condition is you've got to believe in my son. He who believes in the son has life. He who does not believe in the son, the wrath of God abides on him. So he's made it very clear. John 3.16, 3.18, 3.36. He has made it very, very clear. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise. As some count slowness, he's patient toward you. That you is me. That you is you. Not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to a change of mind. He does not want anybody to spend eternity separated from him. Why? His son paid the price for everybody. For everybody. He is a propitiation for our sins and not our sins only, but for those of the whole world. He took care of the whole problem. How would you like to... Pay for something for somebody and then they just throw it away. It's already paid for. He just wants everybody to accept it. 
But sadly, they're not going to. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's the plan. But he gave us the ability to decide, and with that, the responsibility for our decisions. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this day. <clears throat> for your love and mercy and grace and all of that that you poured out upon us. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we get through your word. And Father, as we go from this year into the next year, I pray that we'll have a renewed interest in learning your word and not just learning it, but trying to live it and to be a witness and an example to all those we come in contact with. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.